Rules for Babies and Vampires Long before children can read rules or do chores, they can start learning self-control. Ask any parent who has survived the ordeal of ferberization, which is based on a technique found in the Victorian child-rearing manual. It requires the parents, against all instinct, to ignore their infant's cries when they're left alone at bedtime. Instead of rushing to the infant's side, the parents let the infant cry for a fixed interval of time, then go offer some comfort, then withdraw for another fixed interval. The process is repeated until the child learns to control the crying and go to sleep without any help from the parents. It requires great self-control by the parents to ignore the heart-rending screams, but the infants usually learn quickly to put themselves to sleep without any crying. Once an infant acquires this self-control, everyone wins. The infant is no longer anxious at bedtime, or when he or she wakes up alone in the middle of the night and the parents don't have to spend their nights hovering by the crib. We've seen parents successfully use a variant of this approach when an infant cries to be fed. Instead of immediately feeding the crying child, the mother lets the child know that the signal has been received, but then waits for her or him to quiet down before offering the breast or the bottle. Again, it's hard to ignore the cries at first, and we realize that to some parents it sounds too cruel to even try. But once a child learns to ask for food without going into a crying frenzy, both child and parent end up calmer and happier. The children are learning that they have some power over themselves, that certain kinds of behavior are expected, and that actions have consequences, lessons that will become more and more important as they get older. Nearly all experts agree that children need and want clear rules, and that being held accountable for obeying the rules is a vital feature of healthy development. But rules are only helpful if children know them and understand them. So the brighter the line, the better. Nanny Debs likes to call a special meeting to go over her house rules, and then she posts a chore list in each child's bedroom, along with a wooden pole that's used for keeping score. When children make their bed, or clean their room, or wash the dishes, they get to put a colored ring around the pole. Each ring entitles them to 15 minutes of watching television or playing a video game, up to a total of an hour per day. If they misbehave, they first get a warning. And if they persist, the parent removes one of the rings. To keep the rules consistent, parents need to coordinate with each other and with caretakers so that everyone knows what's expected. When your children are still toddlers, establish a system of rewards and punishments in advance. And when you're giving either one to a child, explain exactly why. As they get older, it becomes more useful to ask them what goals they have for themselves. Once you hear their ambitions, you can help get there with the right incentives, like making allowance payments contingent on doing chores or promising bonuses for doing extra work. But to make these financial inducements worthwhile, parents have to show some restraint themselves. Remember the Kims, who gave their daughter Sue the car she wanted but only after she got into medical school? A teal blue Toyota Tercel may not sound to you like a dream car, but Sue treasured it, lovingly washing and waxing it for years and years. When it finally broke down and had to be towed away, Sue broke down too and started crying. It meant everything to her because she had worked so hard to earn it. By age six, some children can start learning to save money, but it's a struggle, as a psychologist Annette Otto discovered, 
by watching children play a game in which they could save money to buy a desirable toy, but also could spend it along the way on other toys and sweets. Many of the six-year-olds spent their money early in the game only to gradually realize that they might not have enough of the toy and then stop trying to save it all. In contrast, some nine-year-olds and many twelve-year-olds succeeded by saving first until they reached the amount they wanted and then began to spend any additional money on treats. To encourage this orientation toward the future, parents can help children open savings accounts, keep track of the bank statements, and set goals and rewards. Research has shown that children who open bank accounts are more likely than others to grow up to be savers. So are children who grow up discussing money with their parents. Some parents like to offer cash for good grades. Others balk at paying for what children are supposed to be doing anyway. The most compelling argument against these payments is based on what psychologists called the overjustification effect. Rewards turn play into work. More precisely, studies have shown that when people are paid to do the things that they like to do, they start to regard the task as paid drudgery. By that logic, wouldn't paying for grades undermine children's intrinsic love of learning? We're not convinced by that argument. In the first place, grades are already extrinsic rewards, so inserting money into the arrangement does not change any relevance of the overjustification effect to any intrinsic love of learning. Second, performing well for money is a fact of adult life, so getting money for grades is a reasonable preparation for it. That would apply even if it were true that children who get money for grades somehow lose a little of their personal passion for learning. Frankly, as much as we've enjoyed the research in our own careers, we wonder if love of learning is overrated as a motivational tool. Money symbolizes value and using it to pay for grades conveys to children the high value that society and the family places on school, particularly if the money is reserved for outstanding achievement. We'll grant that paying children just for routinely attending school might well reduce their desire to go to school without pay, as if that were a concern. But if you're paying them for working extra hard and excelling, what's the problem? The results from randomized experiments in paying for grades have been mixed. In some places, they haven't done much to improve students' performance. But in other places, the payments seem to be remarkably effective. We don't see the downside in trying this experiment at home. Although, of course, you can always stick with non-cash rewards if you prefer. Just remember that if you want to instill self-control, you need to be consistent in whatever rewards you give. Don't haphazardly give the child something from your wallet for a good report card. Instead. Set the goals in advance. How much money for each A? How much for each B? Which subjects count most, etc.? For a young child, you may have to set the payment schedule. But older children can start negotiating bonuses and penalties, and perhaps even drawing up formal contracts for both sides to sign. The rules and the rewards will change as the child gets older, but it's important to keep a disciplined system in place, no matter how difficult that seems when the dreaded teenage years arrive. The problem with adolescents, from their parents' point of view, is that they have a child's power of self-control presiding over an adult's wants and urges. Whatever harmony emerged by age 9 or 11 is disrupted by biological growth that gives rise to new sexual and aggressive impulses and new thrill-seeking inclinations. 
at some level, teenagers know they need help. That's one reason they buy millions of copies of the Twilight novels in which Edward the Vampire and Bella the Teenager know that she will lose her humanity and probably her life if they consummate their love. Thus, they struggle. Edward, try to sleep, Bella. Bella, no, I want you to kiss me again. Edward, you're overestimating my self-control. Bella, which is tempting you more, my blood or my body? Edward, it's a tie. Their struggle is the same blockbuster ingredient that sold 19th-century romantic novels with titles like Self-Control and Discipline, both written by Mary Brunton, whose books outsold those of her contemporary rival, Jane Austen. 19th-century farmers fretted about their children being tempted by the new freedoms available in industrial cities, but those temptations are mild compared with what's available today in suburbia and on the web. Today's teenagers, even ones in no danger of becoming vampires, understand what Edward is feeling when he tells Bella, I can never, never afford to lose any kind of control when I'm with you. Until adolescents' self-control catches up with their impulses, parents have the thankless task of somehow providing strict external control while at the same time starting to treat the child as something closer to a grown-up. Probably the best compromise is to give the teenager more say in the rulemaking process and to do it when everyone is in a calm, well-rested state, not when the teenager first comes home at two in the morning. If teenagers can help draw up the rules, they begin to see these as personal commitments instead of parental whims. If they negotiate a curfew, they're more likely to respect it or at least to accept the consequences for breaking it. And the more involved they get in setting goals, the more likely they are to proceed to the next step of self-control, monitoring themselves. Wandering Eyes Before his famous marshmallow experiments with children near Stanford University, Walter Michel made another discovery about self-control while working in Trinidad. He went there with the intention of studying ethnic stereotypes. The two main ethnic groups in rural Trinidad were of different descent, one African, the other Indian, and they held negative but different stereotypes of each other. The Indians regarded the Africans as lacking in future orientation and inclined to indulge rather than save, whereas the Africans regarded the Indians as joyless savers who lacked a zest for life. Michel decided to test these stereotypes by asking children from each group to choose between two candy bars. One candy bar was bigger and cost ten times as much as the other, but a child who chose it would have to wait a week to get it. The smaller, cheaper one was available right away. Michel found some support for the ethnic stereotypes, but in the process, he stumbled on a much bigger and more meaningful effect. Children who had a father in the home were far more willing than others to choose the delayed reward. Most of the racial and ethnic variation could be explained by this difference because the Indian children generally lived with both parents, whereas a fair number of the African children lived with a single mother. The value of fatherhood was also evident when Michelle analyzed just the African homes. About half of the children living with fathers chose the delayed reward, but none of the children in fatherless homes were willing to wait. Similarly, None of the Indian children living without a father were willing to wait.
These findings, which were published in 1958, didn't attract much attention at the time or in the ensuing decades when it was dangerous to one's career to suggest that there might be drawbacks to single-parent homes. Daniel Patrick Moynihan was excoriated for making that suggestion. Starting in the 1960s, changes in federal policies, social norms, and divorce rates led to a great expansion in the number of children raised by only one parent, usually the mother. No one wanted to sound critical of those mothers, and we certainly don't want to denigrate their hard work and dedication. But eventually, the data could no longer be ignored. As a general rule, with lots and lots of exceptions, including Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, children raised by single parents tend not to do as well in life as children who grow up with two parents. Even after researchers control for socioeconomic factors and other variables, it turns out that children from two-parent homes get better grades in school. They're healthier and better adjusted emotionally. They have more satisfying social lives and engage in less antisocial behavior. They're more likely to attend an elite university and less likely to go to prison. One possible explanation is that children in one-parent homes start off with a genetic disadvantage in self-control. After all, if the father, or mother for that matter, has run off and abandoned the family, he may have genes favoring impulsive behavior and undermining self-control, and his children might have inherited those same genes. Some researchers have attempted to correct for this by looking at children who were raised by single parents because the father was absent for reasons other than having abandoned the family, like being stationed overseas for a long time or dying at a young age. Predictably, the results were in between. These children showed some deficits, but their problems were not as large as those of the children whose fathers had voluntarily left the home. The evidence suggested that, as usual, children are shaped by a mixture of genetics and the environment. Whatever role is played by genes, there's an obvious environmental factor affecting children in single-parent homes. They're being watched by fewer eyes. Monitoring is a crucial aspect of self-control, and two parents can generally do a better job of monitoring. Single parents are so busy with essential tasks, putting food on the table, keeping the child healthy, paying bills, that they have to put a lower priority on making and enforcing rules. Two parents can divide the work, leaving them both with more time and energy to spend building the child's character. More adult eyes makes a difference, and quite a lasting difference, to judge from the results of a study that started more than six decades ago. In an attempt to prevent juvenile delinquency during the early 1940s, counselors visited more than 250 boys in their homes twice a month. They recorded observations about the family, the home, and the life of the boys. On average, the boys were about 10 when the study began and about 16 when it ended. Decades later, when the boys had grown up and were in their 40s and 50s, the notes were studied by a researcher named Joan McCord, who compared the teenage experiences with subsequent adult behavior, in particular, criminal behavior. A lack of adult supervision during the teenage years turned out to be one of the strongest predictors of criminal behavior. The counselors have recorded whether the boys' activities outside of school were usually, sometimes, or rarely regulated by an adult. The more time the teenagers spent under adult supervision, the less likely they were to be later convicted of either personal or property crimes. 
the passage of decades has not erased the value of parental monitoring. A recent compilation of studies on marijuana use, totaling more than 35,000 participants, shows a robust link to parental supervision. When parents keep tabs on where their children are, what they do, and whom they associate with, the children are much less likely to use illegal drugs than when parents keep fewer close tabs. Similarly, recent studies of diabetic children have found multiple benefits of parental supervision. Adolescents have higher self-control to the extent that their parents generally know where their offspring are after school and at night, what they do with their free time, who their friends are, and how they spend money. Although type 1 diabetes comes on early in life and may be mainly a result of genes, the adolescents with high trait self-control and high parental supervision have lower blood sugar levels, thus less severe diabetic problems than others. In fact, having a mother or father who keeps track of the child's activities, friends, and spending habits can even compensate to some degree for lower levels of self-control in terms of reducing the severity of diabetes. The more the children are being monitored, the more opportunities they have to build their self-control. Parents can guide them through the kind of willpower-strengthening exercises we've discussed earlier, like taking care to sit up straight, to always speak grammatically, to avoid starting sentences with I, and to never say yeah for yes. Anything that forces children to exercise their self-control muscle can be helpful. Taking music lessons, memorizing poems, saying prayers, minding their table manners, avoiding the use of profanity, writing thank you notes. As they strengthen their willpower, children also need to learn when not to rely on it. In Michelle's marshmallow experiments near Stanford, many children tried to resist temptation by staring right at the marshmallow and willing themselves to be strong. It didn't work. Staring at the forbidden marshmallow kept reminding them of its allure, and as soon as willpower slackened for a moment, they gave in and ate it. By contrast, the children who managed to hold out, who waited 15 minutes in order to get two marshmallows, typically succeeded by distracting themselves. They covered their eyes, turned their backs, fiddled with their shoelaces. That marshmallow experiment caused some researchers to conclude that controlling attention is what matters, not building willpower, but we disagree. Yes, controlling attention is important, but you need willpower to control attention. Playing to win. For more than half a century, television has distracted children from other pursuits, and for more than half a century, it's been blamed for just about everything that's wrong with kids. We don't want to join the generalized TV bashing because we've seen children learn lots of useful things from television. But one thing they don't learn is how to control their attention. Successful television shows know how to grab and hold attention without making the same mental demands as other pastimes. Web surfing isn't quite as passive, but it doesn't foster much discipline either, particularly if you're just flitting from one site to another, never pausing to read anything longer than a tweet or a short post. So how can children learn to focus their attention on something longer than a text message? and more challenging than a YouTube video. The usual advice is to get them reading books, and we're only too happy to endorse that. What author isn't? But they can also work on attention by playing the right kind of games, starting well before they're old enough to read. 
Some of the most successful recent self-control programs have drawn on the classic experiments of the Russian psychologist Lev Vygotsky and his followers, who used play to improve children's skills at certain tasks. The children in the experiments generally couldn't stand still for a long time, but their endurance increased if they pretended to be guards on watch. Similarly, they had a much easier time memorizing a list of words if they pretended they were going to a store and had to remember a list of things to buy. The results of those laboratory experiments had been applied in a preschool program called Tools of the Mind, which encourages children to play pretend games that are planned, to some degree, in advance and are sustained for more than a few minutes, and possibly for as long as several days. As we have seen, much of self-control is about integrating behavior over time, passing up immediate gratification for future benefits, so playing a game over several days helps toddlers to start thinking longer range. Prolonged dramatic play with other children also requires them to exert control over attention and sustain make-believe roles. Even simple pretend games like playing house or soldiers obligate toddlers to stay in character and to follow the game's rules when interacting with other children. Independent research has shown that children who participated in Tools of the Mind ended up with significantly better self-control by standard laboratory tests when compared with children who attended more conventional sorts of preschools. Older children can reap some of these same benefits from another modern target of critics' wrath, video games. We'll grant that some of these games are mindless, that the violence can be gratuitous, and that some children spend way too much of their days shooting digital nemeses. But most of the popular criticisms have as much scientific basis as the old warnings about the dastardly perils of comic books, according to Lawrence Kuttner and Cheryl Olson. These Harvard researchers, after reviewing the literature and conducting their own study of middle school children, concluded that most children aren't being hurt by playing video games and that they can derive some of the same benefits from the games as from practicing music, playing sports, or pursuing other passions that require discipline. To succeed at a complex computer game, you need to focus your attention, learn intricate rules, and follow precise steps to reach a goal. It takes much more discipline than watching television. The self-esteem movement, fortunately, never took hold in the video game industry, probably because children would have been too bored by games that began by telling them what great players they were. Instead, children have preferred games in which they start out as lowly noobs, as in newbies, who must earn respect through their accomplishments. To acquire skills, they fail over and over. The typical teenager must have endured thousands of digital deaths and virtual fiascos, yet somehow he retains enough self-esteem to keep trying. While parents and educators have been promoting the everybody-gets-a-trophy philosophy, children have been seeking games with more demanding standards. Players need concentration to fight off orc after orc. They need patience to mine for virtual gold. They need thriftiness to save up for a new sword or helmet. Instead of bemoaning the game's hold over children, we should be exploiting the techniques that game designers have developed. They've refined the basic steps of self-control, setting clear and attainable goals, giving instantaneous feedback, and offering enough encouragement for people to keep practicing and improving. After noticing how hard people work at games, some pioneers are pursuing the gamification of life by adapting these techniques, 
like establishing quests and allowing people to level up for schools and workplaces and digital collaborations. Video games give new glamour to old-fashioned virtues. Success is conditional, but it's within your reach as long as you have the discipline to try, try again.